Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We're going to roll into this episode right away. Just a few pieces of housekeeping. We are uh, coming up on Device Talks Boston. That's happening May 10th and 11th. Go to devicetalks.com to register for that. Make sure you use your uh, your code DTWEEKLY25. Save 25% off the price of registration. We have a Device Talks Tuesday coming up on Tuesday at 4 p.m. brought to you by Millar. The title is Revolutionizing Chronic Implantations Through Advancements in MEMS Sensor Technologies. Be a great conversation about MEMS, which is making uh, headlines with folks like Abbott and others. Lots of uh, great things can be done with sensors, and we'll be talking about that at Device Talks Boston as well. But you can find out about it right now by uh, registering for our Device Talks Tuesday. Again, it's happening on April 18th, Tuesday at 4 p.m. It's brought to you by Millar. You can register for that at devicetalks.com as well. Finally, uh, we'll be rolling out our second Boston Scientific Talks next week. So make sure you've subscribed to the Device Talks Podcast Network. And uh, that's it. You are caught up. Let's get this podcast started. Oh, wait, before I begin, uh, I did want to mention that Fundamental VR, our guest on the uh, podcast today, I spoke with uh, co-founder and CEO Richard Vincent. He'll be at Device Talks Boston. So we'll be doing that with a couple of the upcoming podcasts. We'll sort of be warming up the conversation and getting the conversation going uh, that we'll be having at Device Talks Boston. So enjoy this sort of first segment of a conversation with Richard Vincent. But if you want to uh, get see the presentation by Fundamental VR and uh, be part of the conversation, make sure you register for Device Talks Boston and join us. He'll be presenting on May 10th. Let's go. All right. You ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, doing well. How was the vacation? Oh, it was great. Yeah, highly recommend it. So that's that's that, that sounds great. Yeah, maybe after this device talks Boston thing, I'll take a little more time. Um, sounds like a plan. Getting yeah. into the crazy zone. Getting into the crazy zone. I know. I mean, it's only a month away. Oh, less um. than a month, my friend. <laughs> a month from now, I'll be. Uh, we'll be. I'll be done. It'll be, uh, let's say, the 13th. Yeah, it'll be two days removed. Yeah, so it's less than a month. So, folks, uh, devicetalks.com. Yes. Make sure you register for Device Talks Boston, May 10th and yes. 11th at the BCEC. It's going to be a great, be great, great two days. Or B square. Got to be there or B square. Absolutely. And no one, absolutely no one wants to be square, do they? No, no. no. You, know, you don't want to. No. Don't want to. There's no, no. 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 You want to be rounded. You want to be smooth. Right. Want to be able to roll through. Well, I don't know where I'm going with this. We we don't have anything. I new. have noticed. You know, <laughs> I am old enough now. I have noticed uh, that there are now like younger guys who are doing the little roll up thing on the bottom of their pants again, like they did. And when I was in high school, uh, early '90s, I'm like, oh my gosh. As a child like, no. of the '80s, I thought there were many things that would never find their way back. But as I explained, when you got rid of the yeah. stuff in your basement, the track lighting in your basement. Everything comes back, Chris. Everything track, comes back. Track lighting's not coming back, Tom. It's not coming back. <laughs> You'll see. Someone's gonna be like, "Oh, you got you just threw it out." I would have paid you thousands of dollars for that. 
30 year old track lighting. I mean, I was listening to, uh, you know, to Pandora the other day and there was like a Brandy Carlisle cover of uh, Forever oh. Young. Just rock, rock me to the soul, man. I mean, there's some stuff from the 80s. Yeah, that's not Brandy gonna, or Belinda. Gonna... Belinda Carlisle. Right? Brandy Carl. Do you know Brandy Carlisle? Ah, I'm thinking Belinda. <laughs> <laughs> Brandy's great. I've been listening to we've been to brandy shows okay well you yeah. are more of the music guy than i but i'm uh belinda carlisle i guess is more more my demo but anyway listen to, the, listen to the song the story the story was like her big breakout hit like back in the obama years i might have been a little bit before that but back in the obama years that was like Way back in obama time. three weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> All right. You and I have to be back. I remember President Obama came out to the town square and announced he'd won the election. There's much rejoicing. What was this big phrase? Let me be clear. (laughs) Well, let us uh, let us get let us be clear, and we're gonna get the new markers, news markers, yes, news markers, newsmakers going because there is just so much. There's a lot of news. A lot of news, yeah, a lot to do. So uh, let us yeah, roll. Let's do it. Let's into go. The big number five on the new Marcus Newsmakers. Uh, you know, number five is uh, is actually on Mass Device's sister site, Medical Design and Outsourcing, because this is like a really big regulatory story. So we, we put a lot of our big regulatory stuff on MDO. Um, but it's uh, from uh, Jim Hamran, and it's about like the EPA has now finally proposed. Uh, new ethylene oxide rules for uh, medical device uh, sterilization, and uh, it's. Uh, you know they're 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 making some big moves here. I mean, they're proposing that you know to to reduce ETO emissions from commercial sterilizers by eighty percent. Um, so yeah, that that's that's a lot. So do we uh, have but, a sense of what that looks like? What does that mean? Uh, I mean, it sounds like everyone has to find a different way to sterilize. Eighty percent is pretty much everything. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. And I mean, like, if you're going to say eighty percent, it's like all right, let's just pretend it's. It's it's a hundred percent. I mean, and the the EPA is you know saying that they're um, you know trying to like get a balance here because they recognize that ETO is uh, you know um, is, is such an important um, method for sterilizing medical devices. I mean, there's like the like Jim has a stat in the story that's just kind of mind blowing that you got you know forty billion devices sterilized each year in the U.S. and um, you know half of them are are done through uh, ETO. Uh, so and and it's it's gonna be. I mean, the EPA has some pilot programs to try to find alternative methods, but I mean, ETO right now is pretty much the best you can do for a lot of uh, materials used in medical devices. I mean, there's a lot of medical devices made with things that you can't zap with gamma rays or mm-hmm. radiation, you know, gamma radiation or whatnot. So, so it's uh, it's a big issue for the industry, and I'm sure, there's going to be a lot of opinions on these rules, and uh, we'll, we'll see how everything shakes out. Well, I haven't met previously, I think you had reported or Jim had reported that they were uh, warning about uh, the, the, the warning the President Biden about the threat of ETO facility closure. So Abermed clearly is uh, is is on the job, uh, at least making the industry's uh, voice heard. Yeah, exactly. So we'll uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just, uh, you know, see how this uh this shakes out i mean there's frankly there's no alternative to eto for you know some medical devices at this point right, we'll see we'll we'll see what new companies like fiax who we had on the podcast late last year what they can bring to this uh this problem but uh 
this will, uh, I'm sure, will be new new marker news making about this again uh, in the near future. I mean, yep. yeah, because it's like the need to sterilize, and then on the flip side, you know, you've got you know just the um, you know the the you know the potential health risks you could have in communities of you know there's ETO le- leakage from sterilization plants. Not not to mention the workers who you know are doing the job there. So absolutely. All right, we'll, let's we'll see how it shakes out. Let's roll into number four, Chris Newmarker. All right. Hey, number four, we've got uh, Shockwave Medical completing their uh, $147 million acquisition of uh, Neovasc. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know they, they're the developer of, of, of the reducer system for addressing a refractory angina. So it's uh, just a nice, nice expansion of Shockwave's portfolio. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny at the start of the year, I mean, we were kind of sitting around like, gosh, with, you know, the economic environment more expensive to run a business um, with all these factors, um, uncertainty, you know, like where we're going to see more M&A deals. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're, actually, we're seeing a decent number, I think, of these like at least tuck-in type deals, like smaller deals. People are still shopping for new technology. Well, there's two parts of, uh, of M&A, right? There's the ability to buy and then there's the ability to command a high price. And the ability to hand a, the, 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 the ability to buy has been diminished, but I think Prices have been uh, hit even harder, so valuations are down. We talked with Kevin Lobo about that in this yeah. week's Striker Talks, and you know they're going to do tuck-ins, and he's of the mind that you know the valuations probably are, are getting to a space where uh, where buyers will be ready to commit. That prices perhaps got a little too high before, and we'll see a drop. So yeah, that's interesting. We'll, we'll probably see more uh, more tuck-ins like this. And Striker is is in the in the uh, in the tuck-in pursuit. They're going to be digesting all the debt that they uh, accumulated, acquiring Vocera and such, and right. But uh, they're looking for a little little tuckins as well. So I think you're right. Oh, I think we'll see it's great. a lot of these smaller deals. All right, rolling Good on deal. to num- number three. You know, number three on the list uh, was a uh, you know study uh, you know published in a, in, a, in an American Heart Association. Uh, you know, peer-reviewed journal called Circulation Arrhythmia and Electro- Electrophysiology, and this uh, the study was saying that you know the the Medtronic uh, Micra leadless pacemaker is a safe option for children with uh, slow heart heartbeats. Um, you know, the flip side is that you know the researchers were pouring, pointing out that the you know the um, you know current delivery technology for the Micra, you know, is, is you know it uses a very large catheter. Mm. Designed for adults, lack of reliable future extractability, you know, for for kids at this present point. So, you know, even though this could be a, a safe option for them, uh, it's it's uh, you know they they didn't think that the wider you know pediatric population could you know benefit you know right now. I mean, it really seems to be just a really good example of how how hard it can be to you know. To, to deliver, get useful, you know, med tech to uh, to children. Absolutely, you know, it's, it's it's just been such a huge issue, and like I, I know there's a lot of people in our industry who are very passionate about this, and you know, it uh, it strikes me as something too that you know we you know we we need to get need to get better at. You know, um, you know we've had a few good examples, but um, for Medtronic, you know, is saying that you know they uh, that they have people evaluating potential solutions. You know, including like alternative delivery approaches, so that you know they're so they got people working on this. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, I've got a request out, you know, to them to uh, you know talk with some of the people who are working on this because I just think it's very, it's very, you know, very very cool work, very very useful work, and I, I think it's a great story. Absolutely, 
And we'll be talking about uh, pediatric devices at Device Talks Boston. Uh, we'll have uh, executives uh, from ZimV there talking about their Tether device. Oh, yeah, the Tether device, yeah. Yep. That was really good. Device actually grows as the children grow, right? Yes, that's my right. understanding. We're going we're gonna to yeah. have uh, folks from ZimV there, and actually uh, we'll have a patient. Uh, a patient and their parents oh, wow. will be there to, to uh, sort of talk about the experience. It's and fantastic. Uh, We'll also have, it'll be part of the discussion that Dassault Systems is putting on about uh, their their digital twin platform. Uh, and one of the uh, one of the panelists is uh, David Horgensen, Dr. David Horgensen of Boston Children's Hospital. He's a pediatric cardiac surgeon. And he's director of their uh, computational great. 3D visualization program. So uh, it certainly is an interesting, well, uh, I would think the digital space would, digital twin space would provide a great opportunity for uh pediatric device development because you could do the testing you need to do uh, in a computer model as opposed to a, a living person, which has always been sort of the worry about uh, yeah. targeting younger patients. And I'd be interested to hear, especially because of just the need for those types of devices for kids, like you know, how much the FDA is trying to be accommodating with that, you know, because yep. I mean, there's a need for these devices. And as you said, yeah, it's, it's really tough dynamic to be a, a parent with a kid who needs a device say. and like here's our experimental device that we'd like to test on your child like mm, you know yeah. like, how or, desperate are you yeah well, exactly and that Gosh. really comes down to we're both dads and if you know you're in a situation where well, yeah. your child was suffering something and there was a, a device that helps adults uh you'd be wondering well why can't you know why can't that technology be available to my kids? So uh, yeah. certainly a lot of work to be done there so good for Medtronic uh, and good number three all right, Chris, let's roll yeah. on to number two on the new Marcus Newsmakers. All right. Well, uh, number two on the list, we had uh, you know, the FDA granting a marketing authorization to MoxiMed for their uh, Misha knee system, um, you know, for treating knee osteoarthritis. But I mean, the really cool thing is that um, the company says this is the first implantable shock absorber for the knee. That's great. Which yeah, it's I, great, uh, great image on the on the uh, article too. I'm looking at it right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh yeah, I got a really good good image from what this thing looks like. Um, I was like really the first, so I uh, went over to Microsoft's Bing and AI and was like, "Is this the first? And it was like, "Yes, it's the first. I mean, so if the <laughs> AI said it's true, it's got to be right. I mean, <laughs> uh, of course, of course. Bing, absolutely. Of course, Bing told me. Two weeks ago, that uh, I was asking it for examples of uh, AI being used in prosthetics, and started telling me about Luke Skywalker and how he—it's not wrong, you know. So you know, I mean, no, it's it, like it. it's like Star Wars isn't real. Whoa. There is a Luke. I mean, no. What you think Star Wars? Is- <laughs> That's real oh, enough. We got to talk. We got to talk. It's talk, real talk. enough. Good golly. <laughs> I am I'm a little tired from watching a Mandalorian episode last night, but no, I, not, I'm not caught up. I got a few to catch up on. I'm <laughs> all, all right, caught all up right. in Succession. We can talk that. Oh and, man, uh, I'll talk Andor all day long. Believe me, I don't want to say anything about Succession because I know my friend who lives in L.A. Uh, was pissed off. Excuse me, upset at the uh, L.A. Times because they apparently revealed the uh, the big news in a headline on Monday morning. Seriously, a headline? I- a headline. I Can was annoyed believe- enough that I started reading a New York Times column and then realized they were spoiling it for me. Yeah, I was like, at least ah. if you're going if you're going down, you're like, all right, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, but to, right. to, if you open up a page and it's there, what can you do? You have no right. choice. That's Come just, on, L.A. Times. It was such you a big know. reveal too. It was oh like, my god! Like wow. Yeah, yeah was, you kept you kept great. waiting for great. like you kept waiting for wait. This isn't right. No, this is something else is no, afoot. Something else is no, afoot. Something else is afoot. But they did yeah. it. 
They did it. Or did they? If you listen to uh, the uh, Succession podcast, Kara Swisher uh, hosts that, and she had uh, Brian Cox on there. And he put forth a, a little theory that I don't think is true, but it was uh, it was a great interview. If you're a Succession fan, <laughs> check it out. He's he's absolutely like Logan Roy, just this this cranky old Scott. And conspiracy uh, theories about <laughs> <laughs> that's great. All right, Chris Newmarket, let's right. uh, let's go roll on to uh, number one on the Newmarket's newsmakers. Well, you know, number one on the list uh, is uh, you know, and, and frankly, this is at the top of the list um, because. It's it's had thousands of views on Mass Device, which is um, you know it's 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 actually you know kind of troubling in a way because this was just um, well I mean just to give people some background I mean unfortunately with this environment of having so many layoffs going on right now I'm uh, doing something else from the early Obama years like I did as a business reporter back then which is like go through these you know, state warn reports, you know, uh, you know, to, to, you know, try to catch news of what's going on in the layoff front with medical device companies. Um, you know, because if you're, if you're doing a big layoff, you need to inform the state. And while I was doing this, I, I saw that, you know, Medtronic had, uh, you know, let go of uh, 59 people at a, a facility that they're uh, closing down in, in California. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very straightforward story. Just like, you know, 59 workers being let go. Now uh, it's, um, site related to epics therapeutics which is you know radio frequency cardioblation tech that you know medtronic bought for 316 million dollars in 2019 you know as part of you know medtronic right now is going through significant cost reductions so as part of this they um you know they're move they're you know closing down this facility and moving the uh diamond temp catheter manufacturing to uh to a you know Galway Ireland facility, but mm-hmm. I mean just just thousands of views on Mass Device, and I I just think it just must speak to you know the the fact that you know like Medtronic right now like saying that they're undergoing significant expense reductions. We've been covering some of what's going on there. Um, just anything saying that there's like all of a sudden layoffs there is it's just getting getting views, and all I can say is I just I just hope that. Um, Hope, hope there isn't much like not many people get let yeah. go over there you know or you know that you know hope, hopefully that you know i, I just uh yeah basically my my sympathy goes out to the people of that company because you know it's um it's a it's a tough time right now yeah and the industry more broadly too i suspect yeah. the, the amount of views was tied more to the as much to the interest in that company but also in the industry more broadly i think there's a lot of anxiety out there uh, about layoffs, um, I don't yeah. think we're—I don't think we're trying to foster that or encourage that. I do think it's your job. All. It's your job to you know to report on it. And as we've talked about in the past, I think I think it's, it's beneficial when sort of the news gets out about individual companies, just so people can see where they are in the grand scheme of things, where there may be employees available, where there may be opportunities for others. So, I mean, it, it's just, it's a, it's a piece of news. I think there is broader anxiety. I, I hope it's subsiding, um, you know, but we've, yeah. we've talked about multiple companies and you're tracking it on mass device that, that have reported layoffs. Um, and I think it's just a, it's a natural contraction of the industry at this point. So. Um, I, I think so. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it in the past, medtech has been fairly recession-proof, and frankly, you know, we're not technically in a recession even yet. I mean, but I mean, right now, it just seems like 
we have a lot of factors that are just coming together for, for companies in general, not even med tech, but just companies in general right now. I mean, all, all things making it more expensive to run a business, you know, high, higher inflation, higher interest rates, yeah. you know, supply chain disruption. And then for med tech, then you add on the fact that their health provider customers have all these operational China, you know, challenges, a company like Medtronic or, you know, many other large medical device companies doing a lot of business in China. China's trying to rein in costs. So, I mean, just a lot, a lot going a lot going on. I, I'm just, you know, maybe, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I think uh, I, I, I think that a lot of this is temporary. I think these factors are, you know, well, everything well, at, is least a, at least a chunk of them are going to be temporary, and we'll we'll work through this. Yeah, everything is cyclical, and I and I do I think that companies we were talking about M and A before, and with M and A comes readjustments. You know, uh, uh, manufacturing lines are absorbed by a larger company, or they move from one area to another. Is happened in this exactly. case. And it's when we talk about M and A, it's not just oh, everyone from this company goes over to that. There is a downside to M and A that we don't necessarily we don't speak to on the podcast very often. A human element, uh, so it's important to, to take note of that. But um, it's yeah, it's, it's of, true. Yeah, it's part of the times. It's part of the industry. So, and I think yeah, that's probably why there's a lot of a lot of people clicking over. So, but as you said, well, hopefully. There aren't going to be many more of these, if any more of these, so we can uh, move on to talking about cool I'm, technologies and cures, which is exactly. What we want to talk I'm about. Gonna, I'm getting tired of like writing about layoffs, Tom. I think it's just uh, it's just not a uh, it's just the, it's a it's a sad thing. It's tough to write about you know people having you know losing their jobs and having to you know look for for new positions elsewhere. And you know I'm just uh, you know I, I know I know Medtronic saying they're engaging in significant expense reductions over there. Not a lot of words about layoffs at this point you know i'm just uh you know i you know hope i'm just hoping that you know here here's the hoping that it's uh you know the you know whatever you know like gets uh fleshed out over there you know isn't isn't too bad you know and i i you know also also kind of have a stake in this too because i'm based here in you know minneapolis sure they're such a large employee employer and they're you know so these so, I mean, I, I run into people who work at Medtronic all the time, you know, so like I, I just my heart goes out and, you know, hope, hope, uh, hope that everything works out well. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, we're obviously impartial observers, but we also root for the home team. Uh, exactly. Boston Scientific is located both here and there, but it's got yeah. Boston in the name. So I'll, I always like to give it a little cheer. We're happy to have the Boston Scientific Talks podcast out. Uh, along with Medtronic Talks and Striker Talks and Intuitive Talks. So great that these companies are continuing to to tell their stories. And uh, we definitely will – most of our focus will be on the on the cool stuff that goes on occasionally. Real life has to have – to, has to uh, – finds a way in. Real life finds a way in. So, all right. Sure. You know, and I think we're uh, – yeah. I mean, I, I think I, – I feel so fortunate to – you know, I'm, I, I, uh, I still have my journalism chops, you know, we, we got to call things out when, you know, there's problems here or there, but at the same time, it's very cool writing about a, an industry that's, you know, doing, doing so much to try to, you know, improve and uh, save human life. So. Absolutely. All right, Chris Newmarker, great job right. with the Newmarker's Newsmakers. Thanks, right, Tom. Well, Richard Vincent, welcome to the podcast. Tom, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I love VR. It's an extraordinarily exciting technology, I think, for healthcare and for training and for other things as well. I'm excited to hear about how fundamental VR is uh, is going to make things easier for the medical device industry. But first, I'd, I'd love to understand your background and, and how you came to uh, to start this company. This is really your your first medical device oriented company. Is that correct? 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um listen, it's great great to be here and great to be on Device Talks. I mean, you, some of your podcasts have been really informative. So an honor to be on this side of the oh, uh, of, of the microphone. I've been in technology for 30 years. This is my first application of technology into the medical space. Prior to starting Fundamental VR eight years ago, I spent about 20 years in the mobile tech space, which is actually surprisingly tangential in in the way that it's developing in VR and how it developed in the mobile space. So uh, there's a lot of carryover from there in terms of how early early stage technology is adopted, Mm. how it scales, how it then needs to consolidate and become interoperative. And I think we're we're heading into those phases now. So yeah, it's been a it's been a really interesting few years. Uh, as I said, prior to Fundamental, I set up and ran a couple of other businesses, doing pretty much the same as I'm doing here, which is you know, working out how to scale new tech into really meaningful business to business use cases. Your point is interesting with, with technology. How has its relationship with industries like healthcare and medical devices changed over just the past ten years? I mean, they were very. In my opinion, there were very different silos before, and then you had companies that were professing to either be technology companies that were going to bring their smarts to, to medical devices or medical devices that were going to put the tech in med tech and, and really incorporate. But there was still a separation. But I'm feeling now at medical device companies, whomever I talk to has technology on their mind. It definitely seems to be a stronger marriage between the two now. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think these things don't happen overnight, and rightly so. The healthcare industry is conservative. You know, we need to know we need to know that the impacts of innovations in whether technology or others are going are going to have a you know tangible and safe impact on ultimately what we're all trying to do, which is improve patient outcomes. So there has been a a methodical adoption rather than accelerated adoption. I think, of course, we all know three years ago there was a massive inflection point because of the pandemic. And Mm. that changed technology within the medical marketplace across all spheres pretty much overnight. That change has continued to show its ripples over the post-pandemic period. I don't think it's got the same velocity, but it's certainly caused a change in direction in many areas. And ours is one that I don't think we'll ever go back now. I guess the key thing, though, Tom, is most technology that comes into healthcare, sadly, it doesn't help to reduce cost Mm -hmm. or necessarily improve patient outcome. (laughs) It It generally adds cost, adds complexity and slows things down. And so it's right that there's been some resistance in in a lot of areas because of that challenge. Where you see technology that can do the opposite and deliver better outcomes, can deliver better cost effectiveness, then it's a delight for the industry to see it. It still has to go through that process of just checking that it's going to do what we say it's going to do. And that takes the necessary validation, which, of course, takes some time. No, that's interesting. I'm just chuckling to myself when you said three years ago, just speaks to the what happened with the banana. My mind went to like 2018. <laughs> I'm like, what happened then? And then you mentioned, I'm like, wow, that was three years ago. It seems like yesterday and also a decade ago. So yeah, that was that was a turning point for sure. <laughs> it's interesting with, with sort of technology making things, trying to make things easier for, for surgeons. And I, I make this joke sometimes about the different interfaces that you'll have with surgical robotic systems or other tools that surgeons are expected to use. And here we are living day to day. Some people are Zoom people, some people are Teams people. And it seems like when we try to talk to each other, there's all these sort of wrinkles. Oh, I didn't know how to share, or I didn't know how to log in, or I needed to refresh that. 
I always imagine trying to incorporate those challenges into a clinical setting. Yeah, the bar has to be super high for for surgeons to avoid going through that sort of acclimation each time they're they're trying to see a patient. I'm making a point more than asking a question, but you're right. How do surgeons look at technology nowadays, do you think? Do you see a willingness to adopt new tech? Do you still see some hesitancy? Where where are we with that? Yeah, we see we see a, a great deal of enthusiasm. If you talk to most surgeons and, and their support staff and the nurses, et cetera, they will say to you today, you know, the, the use of immersive technology or XR, if you like, across the paradigm of delivering patient care has got some really interesting and, and exciting opportunities. I think the closer you get to the learning and education piece, I think we see more readiness there to adopt than perhaps in the perioperative environment or the post-operative environment with, with patient care. But I think that's just because that's where things started. So we're just that little bit further along. In our use case, where we're looking at that skills training, we're looking at, at skills acquisition, at knowledge acquisition, it's a pretty universal positive view. And again, part of that is we've got far enough down the, the journey now that we can all point to multiple validation studies that show significant impact, whether it's VR versus traditional, whether it's haptic VR versus traditional VR, which is where you bring in the sense of touch, et cetera. So, so that knowledge is now there, the validation is now there, and therefore readiness to adopt, I think, is there as well. And again, you know, whilst it was, and I agree with you, Tom, it, it feels like yesterday, and but it is scary that it was three years ago, but, but the readiness to, to use other types of technology to collaborate, to come together, to reduce the need to travel, I think all of those things, again, have helped us within, particularly in the, in, in the training space. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's focus on, on your story more specifically. Take me back to January 2015 or calendar ballpark around that time when you, when you decided to co-found Fundamental VR. What was the catalyst to your creating this company? Sure. It, it was, um, again, I, I came at it from a technology standpoint, which was I could see finally that virtual reality was going to touch down. It's been around for a long time, but it, it, the new consumer version of that was starting to show itself. We could see, Chris and I, who I co-founded the business with, we, we could see that it was inevitable from our perspective that virtual reality was going to have a, a significant impact on the consumer computing interface. The question was, where and, and how can it be most worthwhile? So that was us really at the beginning of 2015 going, well, where would you apply this technology and where can it have the most impact? And it took us a few months, definitely, of exploring different verticals. I've always been a great believer in, you know, get out in the real world, get with industry, get with end users and, and listen, understand and test. So we did exactly that. We tried a number of different verticals and, and landed in the, in the medical space fairly quickly, working with a few strategics, so, so medical device companies, and found that it was quite clearly the best use case for that type of emerging technology. The challenge we had, Tom, was having kind of concluded that, we then realized that delivering it just as an audible and visual experience, whilst valuable, was going to have limitations. It was going to top out. So we set about and spent the next year really engineering and working out how do you deliver meaningful haptic interactions, so kinesthetic haptic interactions, within a virtual reality space that means that you can deliver a proposition that is going to have a, a significant impact on on the use case that we were looking at, which was, again, the, the training and education. 
So that that was really that was 2015 and 2016 for us. It was working that through, understanding how surgeons would use it, bringing as many of those experts around us as we could, gaining their opinions on it, getting them to argue about the different benefits of different elements of the, of the platform that we were starting to visualize. And that's a really important and, and iterative process that we went through to kind of stand up version one of the platform that we then set about building over the next couple of years. Help me understand the process that led you to identify the problem you wanted to solve. First of all, what was that problem that, that you wanted to solve? And, and how did you come to that being the, the entry point for bringing technology into the medical device industry? So the, the problem became really clear as we talked to our colleagues within surgery and, and supporting services. And that was really two things. One, there's just so much to learn and retain and get highly skilled in. And that velocity of of volume is just increasing all the time as devices become more complex. So that was was the first thing. The second one was, there's no time. So, I mean, for the last 200 years, you know, the the adage of see one, do one, teach one has has held, you know, and the apprenticeship model that is used in, in all residency training, and all innovation uh, adoption within hospitals is, you know, has just held the same way. It's like, you need to follow me around. You need to watch what I do. I'll let you try eventually. Let's hope that you get to do that in a way that's as controlled as possible. So there's, there's not an adverse patient outcome. And eventually you'll be able to do the same. And that for us and for me just felt there had to be a better way of doing it. And we could really see that this could deal with both the volume and scarcity of time because we can put our system where people are at the time when they're ready to take on that training. You know, the simulation, wet labs, surgical theatres, sim labs, you know, those have all existed for a long time. The problem is you just don't get there very often. And for learning to happen in real time at the pace we need it to in today's healthcare market, it has to be an, an everyday occurrence. It has to be with me when I'm ready for it. And that, that's what we set about trying to, to fix. And, and what was your solution or what was the technology that you were looking to find that home for? Did you have something that was proprietary, a VR system that was proprietary? You were looking to apply more, I don't want to say off the shelf, but just more mainstream VR to uh, a specific problem. What what were you bringing to the to the problem? Yeah, so, so we decided that couple of key things. Firstly, we didn't want to get anywhere near hardware because it changes really fast. It's hardware is really hard. And um, and there's some big players out there, you know, the Microsofts and the Metas and Picos and HTC and soon Apple, you know, who are all investing way above our level of capability uh, in this in that part of the problem. So we decided leave the hardware to the hardware guys, let's focus on the software and try and through that process, deliver a proposition that is basically future-proofed. So let's take VR and that's this is what we've done. We've taken virtual reality and all of the power that that can bring, you know, that situational awareness, it's the ability to see in 3D the relationship between different anatomy parts and, and different, different ways that, that patients present take all of that power that comes from VR along with the audio and and the presence that you get, which is fantastic, take that and then marry that up with a haptic intelligence engine that allows us to deliver weight, force, resistance, flow. So you start to feel as well as see and hear 
what's happening within that environment as close as we can get it to real life so that you can have those opportunities to rehearse 50 times, not three times. You know, again, you'll know this from all of your experience, Tom, but the learning curves for new technology are, and I mean medical device technology and and uh, and similar, you know, they're they're increasing all the time. I think the last the last data I saw, you know, a, a new robot system for a fully tenured qualified surgeon learning a new technique on a on a new robot is probably going to have a learning curve somewhere in the region of sixty to ninety cases. Now, most of those are going to be live patients. And every adverse or, or, or less than optimum outcome that they have during that learning curve is a real person. And so, you know, we're, we're all about trying to just insert our capability in that space and say, learn on the simulation, just get, get down that journey a bit further so that if you then go on to do cadaveric, you get more out of it. If you then go straight into the operating room, you're better prepared. You've got more competence. You've got more capability. You've got more confidence because you've just been there and done it more often. That's really what we're, we've been setting out to do over the last few years. Describe for me the, the fundamental surgery platform, your, your entire platform. I know you have the haptic VR, you've got standalone VR, collaboration VR, all, all these capabilities, but what, what is the product and or the service you're selling? And, and is it, a, yeah, maybe, is it, can you tell me, is it a combination of sort of a SaaS model and, and an equipment model? What is it that you're, you're making available? Yeah, so it is a it, it is a SaaS based model that we operate with with most of our customers. Our customers tend to be medical device pharmaceutical businesses that all have the same common challenge, which is that learning curve I was talking about. You know, getting people along that curve gets their product adopted more efficiently, and we can deliver at scale a better ROI than some of those traditional ways of of operating. In terms of the system itself, well, what we've we've moved that system now from um, ophthalmology to orthopedics to endovascular, urology, robotics. We really haven't found a limitation in, in the way that the system can adopt and be applied to those different surgical use cases. And what we do with our customers is we provide them with a, a configuration service to put their device or drug into a simulation within the platform. They take advantage of all of the security, the data, the analytics, the distribution that comes within the fundamental surgery platform, and then they can scale that out. Whether it's on a standalone headset, as you mentioned, so that could be like a a meta quest, or whether it's on a full haptic system, which would involve, still could be a meta quest pro, but it could also be a a laptop and and a haptic glove. Depending on the use case, we'll vary that out. And again, that's why we've stayed hardware agnostic, so we can fit the hardware onto our software in a way that works for our customer use case. And then our customers will take that into their user environment. So that's into hospitals or into their training centers and allow them to, to use that as they see fit. What comes off the back of that, Tom, is a, is a fantastically rich set of data in real time, delivers to the user you know, very precise feedback on outputs of their inputs as they go through the different surgical objectives. All of that data also goes into a data dashboard that they can then mine later to start to understand trends in proficiency and capability. And our, our machine learning starts to predict how that will change and they perhaps need to adjust their behaviors within those simulations. So it, get, it gets very deep in terms of the ways that it can it can deliver value to, to different users. Well, let's, let's drill down first on the haptics and then I want to talk about the data, but the haptics. 
I looked at a couple of the videos on your website. You've got a, some good sort of instructional videos by a surgeon sort of explaining the power of your haptics. I mean, anyone, anyone who's used a VR headset, you know, sort of has a sensation of the, the sensory sensations on your fingers when you're touching something or pushing something, but yours takes that to a different level, correct? Talk a bit about the haptics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Delighted to. So it's been a passion of mine, a passion of mine for um, <laughs> seven years now. We've been working hard on that, you know, both the tech side of it, but also the clinical side, understanding the interrelationship between different different ways of touching things, whether you're using a tool and different types of tissue densities and how they change and react. So in really simple terms, haptics run a gambit from very simple buzz haptics, so cutaneous haptics, the sort of haptics you'd find on your phone or in a gaming controller. They go from there all the way to kinesthetic grounded haptics, where you're talking about force feedback, something that will stop your hand it will create resistance. If you're perhaps doing something with an interventional uh, use case, you might feel flow. All of those elements are there. And because of the, the system that we've built and the algorithms that we have that run it, it allows us to turn up and down those haptic capabilities depending on the devices that you're using and, and again, the use case that's, that's required. So you can really get your hands on, quite literally, the ability to understand the physical cues, you know, and we we know that in many cases, you know, line of sight within surgery is is obscured, and therefore, you know, the ability to feel your way quite literally is is what's required. You know, if you're if you're doing certain procedures, you need to be able to feel with your hands or with a tool how that's working. As you even if you're down to simple things like um, suturing and using a needle driver, you're still feeling the pop, you're feeling the resistance as you go through. It's very subtle but it's your physical cue. That's what we try to replicate. And, and the driver for that is not technology for technology's sake, but simply when we took this out into market at the very early stages, and as we continue to do it today, what we continue to hear from our end users is this stuff's important. If I can't do that part of the learning, if I can't feel the interaction, I only get so far. Now, there's been a number of studies done. We've done some that have shown 40 to 50% improvement in skills acquisition, so the accuracy of what you learn because of the haptics. There have been some studies done, and, and these are often referenced. They're quite old now, but they've been done where they've said, you know, haptics can be, can be adverse in the learning experience. But if you drill into those studies, what you discover is it, what they actually say is bad haptics are bad for learning. And I 100% agree with that. You know, if it doesn't replicate, feel like, or, or in any way, mirror what you're really going to do in the real world, well, then it's certainly not adding it and it's actually potentially dangerous. So let's not do that. Let's, uh, as we have, we've just stayed preoccupied with making sure that the fidelity and the capability is as good as it can be delivered through whichever haptic device you choose to use. And it's pretty remarkable. I think that you you have systems for ophthalmology and for orthopedics. I can't imagine two specialties that would have <laughs> different levels of haptics. What is it that, I mean, what is the, the secret sauce to your haptic technologies? Was it, I don't know how this works. Is it a code you write? Is it a, a certain sensor that you develop? What is the element that allows you to deliver the level of haptics that you're able to deliver? Yeah, great question. So we're working, because, of the, because we're using off-the-shelf hardware, we're working with, relatively speaking, quite low-grade computing power and GPUs. So the secret sauce for us is really, how do you create the computation on the fly to allow a system to then deliver that feeling back in real time 
doing it on a consumer grade uh, piece of equipment. And, and that's really been the challenge for us all the way through this. So we use um, a number of different systems, but just to uh, and these are all within our proprietary and patented haptic intelligence engine. They basically allow us to calculate on the fly what the physical interaction is going to be as you decide what you do. So we're not putting you on rails here and saying you can only interact in a certain uh, quadrant. What the system is doing is is enabling it to understand as you, let's say, dissect and therefore you're in effect destroying the tissue, which in our case is, is a set of voxels or it's a set of pixels, as you start to destroy those with, with a dissection, as you cut into it, we've got to calculate the way that, that each of those molecules will move, will interact with each other, and will then re-represent themselves. So that takes in you know, the, the tissue movement, the, the, the bleeding potential, all of those elements have got to be quickly calculated and re-represented back to the uh, to the user. And that's really what we've 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 specialized into. And as you say, you know, once once you've got it and you understand the relationship between X type of device and Y type of tissue, you can then codify it, lock it. And then you just have to adjust to it. So we've been building up an extensive library of haptic and visual interactions uh, over the last few years that we can then apply, whether it's to ophthalmology, where it's tiny, tiny movements. But again, that sense of resistance is really important when you're in the back of the eye through to big gross movements in, in orthopedics um, and everything in between. And what's really exciting, Tom, is we've we've got to the point now with these technologies where we're starting to, we've been packaging them up for ourselves so that we can deliver them faster for our customers, but we're actually going to release them in a couple of months time into the open market so that other developers and content producers can also take advantage of them. That's great. And I know we'll be exploring this uh, even more thoroughly at uh, Device Talks Boston. So uh, there's lots more to talk about, but I wanted to drill down also into the, the data part that's being collected. Is the data that's used there, is it primarily used to help physicians improve their performance? Or are there elements of, of data that can be used for companies to help them in, in uh, engineering new devices? Great question. Primarily, it's for the use of the surgeons who are in the simulation, so they get real-time feedback and understanding of how and what their interactions are, how they progress, and they can track that over time. And we find, again, the great thing about technology is once you've put it out there, people use it in different ways. So we found some customers will use it as part of a, a skills acquisition program where they will literally say to users, look, I need you to get to this stage of competency on the data that's coming out of fundamental surgery before we can go on to this in-person, perhaps cadaveric session or, or in-OR session. So they use it in that way. What we record within our data set is pretty extensive from telemetry of, of an individual surgeon. So their movement paths, their eye paths, which mirror real life really, really closely. So we can start to, again, provide feedback based on the movement path that a surgeon will portray within a procedure. We're also able to take that data along with the surgical outcome data by each surgical objective and across the whole procedure and start to correlate those two together. So to give another level of depth of understanding. Ultimately, where I want us to go with this technology, and we're not there today, but where we want to take this is towards something I, I like to call pre-human competence. So that's the idea that I've got to the point where I have acquired most of the skill and, and capability before I go into a human interaction, whether that's a specimen 
cadaveric specimen or whether it's a live patient. And the data that we're pulling is allowing us to start to build up that profile, because where we need to get this to is to link it to health economic outcomes, to say, actually, this is what's happening to the end patient at mass because of this. And when we've got there, we've really closed the loop then, because we've said, look, actually, now we can show not just in in controlled studies that it works, but actually, when it comes to patients in the real world, we are reducing cost, improving outcomes, improving access, you know, all of those things which we all want to to really pursue. Fascinating. Well, we've got a lot more to talk about. Appreciate your uh, your joining us on the podcast and uh, can't wait to uh, continue this conversation at Device Talks Boston. Richard, thank you for joining us. Looking forward to uh, seeing you in May, Tom, and uh, thanks for today. All right, Chris Newmarker, we'll wrap it up right there. Uh, where can folks find you on social media? Hey, you can find me on new on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. And I am on LinkedIn as well, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I, occasionally on Twitter at MedTechTom. Uh, please do follow the Device Talks podcast network. You'll get future episodes of Device Talks Weekly, Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, and of course, I mentioned Boston Scientific Talks. We'll be launching Abbott Talks in Abbott, in Abbott, in June. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. another one may be coming uh, second half of 2023. So uh, make sure you subscribe. There's going to be a lot of MedTech news coming your way. And of course, as we mentioned before, Medtronic Talks, uh, we'll be resuming or, or starting season three of Medtronic Talks. Uh, we're resuming. We had one earlier this year, but we had a bit of a lull uh, for reasons here and there. Uh, but we're going to be starting that up again. So make sure you're subscribed to Medtronic Talks as well. Every major podcast player has both the Device Talks Podcast Network and Medtronic Talks. So uh, don't miss any of this cool, cool MedTech stuff. A smorgasbord of medtech content. Smorgasbord, indeed. And don't forget to uh, check out Device Talks Tuesdays coming up on Tuesday at 4 p.m. And, of course, uh, Device Talks Boston, which is happening less than a month in Boston. Registration is going really well. We're we're leagues ahead of last year in terms of registration, but we definitely want to have everyone there as, as uh, who can be there. So uh, go to devicetalks.com, check out the agenda and register and make sure you use the code DTWeekly25, uh, DTWeekly25 for Device Talks Weekly 25 or Device Talks Weekly and uh, save 25% again by using the code DTWeekly25. Don't want to confuse anybody. So that is a wrap, Chris Newmarker. Thanks for, uh, good to see you again, Chris. Good to see you too, Tom. <laughs> let's uh, let's get back to work. Thanks everybody. Thanks yeah. everybody for listening to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Yeah. Enjoy the spring, everybody. Yeah.